You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we're in Limoges. Cavendish, the youngest British rider ever to get a stage win in the Tour de France. Number six for Mark Cavendish. There's nobody can match the speed of this amazing kid. C'est maintenant ou jamais Mark Cavendish. Il a gagné sur le Tour de France. Gets four out of four wins in the last four years in Paris. This is the end of a very, very impressive win by him today. We often say that, but you know, Cavendish wins are often very impressive. But it was very convincing. It's a terrible scene for us on the road. A touch of wheels and Mark Cavendish in Mark all is, um, sorts of trouble. He's admitted that he made a mistake today. He went for a gap that wasn't there and he's, he's called or he's going to call Gerrans. Stage one of the 2016 Tour de France from Mont Saint-Michel to Utah Beach. Uh, for a while it looked like Peter Sagan was going to get it. But then Mark Cavendish came surging through the middle, off Sagan's wheel. Cavendish took his 27th Tour stage win. Cavendish trying to force a gap on the road. Chaotic down here on the finish line in Vittel. A really hard impact for Mark Cavendish. He came off worse in that one. And I've just seen him go past. His hand is uh, is already bandaged up and strapped in netting. And, and today, Cavendish, I mean, so far outside the time limit. In trouble, really, from the first climb. And his Tour de France over. Will we see him next year in with another team, or what's going to happen next? When I get older, losing my head. Many years from now, he's done it. That is unbelievable. It's coming off to the line. Is he going to get that? Oh, I think he has. I think he has done it. The little guy is standing with giants. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 34? <laughs> well, that is the highs and lows of Mark Cavendish's Tour de France career. More highs than lows, but very much a low this afternoon because he's crashed out of the Tour de France. 24 hours ago, he was second on the stage and frustrated, disappointed by the gears not working properly, not being able to execute his full sprint, felt like he could have won the stage. Instead, Jasper Philipson pipped him. Still searching for that elusive 35th Tour de France stage win. I know he doesn't make a big thing of it because he is the joint record holder with Eddie Merckx, but to be the outright record holder really would be a remarkable achievement for his career. But today, with just over 60 kilometres to go, a real routine, innocuous-looking crash towards the back of the peloton, Mark Cavendish hit the ground hard and stayed down and uh, well we don't know the extent of his injuries as we're recording but clearly sufficient to rule him out of the race he climbed into the ambulance and was taken to hospital here in Limoges I believe suspected fractured collarbone a real blow for Mark Cavendish and uh, a sad way we think for his Tour de France career to come to an end. Oh exactly look all the record aside the record is a big thing but I think you know, isn't it funny, all those dangerous sprints and everything he's involved with, and it's just during a stage. Like you said, I'm sure he would have loved to just, regardless of the record again, love to roll down the Champs-Élysées that one last time. Um, so, yeah, really sad. I, I really feel for him and um, in his last, year's, last year of his career. I know what it's like when you announce it. You've got this fairy tale idea, but not many people get to do the fairy tale, so... Well, that's Mitch Docker, 
former professional rider with many teams, including Orica Green Edge and EF Education. And of course, your final race at a pro was your favourite race, Paris-Roubaix. And you were on the ground in the neutral zone, more or less, or just after leaving the neutral zone. So you know exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, my name's Lionel Burney. This is the Cycling Podcast, of course. And stage eight, well, we're going to focus first of all on Mark Cavendish because, well, as pretty much everyone who's been watching the sport since 2007 will say, Mark Cavendish is the greatest sprinter the Tour de France has ever seen. And, well, this is the reaction from around the team buses this evening. First of all, Mark Renshaw, who was a big player in many of those sprints for HTC Columbia. He was a lead-out man. He was a right-hand man. He was a morale booster. He was a friend. And he was brought in by the Astana team for this Tour de France in the hope that he might be able to rekindle that magic or help rekindle that magic for Mark Cavendish. And, well, you can hear the disappointment in his voice. And then we'll hear from Rod Ellingworth, probably the man in professional cycling who knows Mark Cavendish best, certainly has known him longest. He was the person that basically made the case that he should be selected for the British Cycling Academy way back in the mid-2000s and mentored him through the early years of his career and, well, this is Mark Renshaw and Rod Ellingworth this evening at the team buses. Yeah, it hurts more than yesterday, and I didn't think that was really going to be possible, you know, to finish second yesterday and then today to have, you know, this happen to Mark. And it's hard because we all know his shape's there. He's, he's there for the win. He's, you know, he has the legs, um, and it's, it's there. So all we know at the moment is, like, I don't want to say too much for him, but... I imagine he's really disappointed, as are all the riders, because, you know, they came here with a clear objective. And at the moment, all we can say is that he's um, he's on the way to the hospital in Perigo. Um, on the, at the moment, the team doctor, our team press and, and socials media guy is, is on the way there to speak with him. Um, so I'm probably, I don't want to say too many comments after this, just that uh, he's on the way to the hospital and as soon as they have a, an official press release with exactly the medical problems, then they'll release that. And just briefly from your perspective, Mark, you, you are part of the legacy. You helped build it with him uh, for many, many years. So how does it feel for you? Yeah, I, I won't lie, I cried. Uh, you know, as did, did Maurizio in the car. You know, everyone in the team, they're hurting because there's a hell of a lot of work going in and... I've been fortunate enough to really come in last minute, but you know, uh, Alexander Vinokurov took a took a chance on him, and who would have thought, you know, in January that he'd be here running second uh, in the Tour de France, and then next day crashing. So, thanks everyone, and I wish him all the best, and thanks for all your coverage, everybody. I think Mark really appreciates it. Well, Rod, you've known Mark Cavendish probably longer than anyone in professional cycling. What's your reaction to that? We have to assume the sad end to his Tour de France career today. Yeah, I mean, just dreadful, really, isn't it? I mean, it obviously, part of the game, isn't it? The risks of cycling. And, and when you think about um, the moment, it was quite a simple fall. But, you know, as we know, they're sometimes the worst if you're a bit relaxed or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I can't say exactly what happened. But, yeah, just awful, really. And, and then you do also think about how many times he's bounced off the road and he's been fine in them high-speed crashes. And so, yeah, really, really sad. I mean, straight away in my mind, I just thought, I knew he'd be upset and you could clearly see that, but I did wonder whether he'd do another year. So I don't know. I mean, I think he's, um, yeah, disappointing, isn't it, for him? Massive. Yeah, he's not the type to give up, is he? And yesterday, I know there was a little mechanical problem, but he looked great in the sprint. Yeah, I, th- I thought he was moving really well yesterday. I think he's fast. I, I, you know, I, I really did believe he could win another stage. And I, 
but there we go yeah I don't know you know at the end of the day he's decided he's going to stop at the end of the year this was going to be his last tour um, I'm sure he'll have a think about it but I don't know you know it's but it's hugely disappointing I think for the whole race I think for the history of the sport and the sport moving on as well you know he's he's the greatest sprinter we've ever seen I think yeah disappointing well, Rod Ellingworth there suggesting that maybe, who knows, maybe he will want to go on. I mean, he's not going to make that decision tonight, is he? But having made the announcement at the Giro that this would be his final season, setting up the sort of fairy tale last Tour de France with Astana, he may rethink that. I don't want to second guess that, but you wouldn't put it past him. He's such a determined character. And maybe yesterday, the way he was sprinting might persuade him that perhaps he's got another 12 months in him. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, you know, to put it out there, and you, your mind obviously would shift. As, as I said before, I know what it's like. You you start shifting into the afterlife. What's it going to be? You start putting things into place. I'm sure he has started doing all that stuff. But the mentality shifts. But I reckon exactly what you said. That something there was something that sort of sparked again. You know, especially with that Giro victory, and then coming here. Working again with Mark Renshaw, I felt like things were starting to click in a funny team for sprints, a starter of all teams. So he, he he is just amazing, isn't he? How he can just make something out of, I wouldn't say nothing, but he just created this atmosphere in a, in a team that didn't really focus on the sprints and he, he got the best out of a guy like Case Bowl, you know? And I feel like something sparking. I don't know. It would be hard because I'm sure his wife's thinking, hey... Come on, Come yeah, on that's now, it. yeah, geez, <laughs> yeah. You, know. you said, you, you promised. Yeah, so he's but, probably going to deal with that now yeah, too. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the thing is, I mean, you know, Mark Cavendish is, is a slightly divisive figure. You know, there are some people who, who, who don't like the cut of his jib maybe, uh, but there are an enormous number of Mark Cavendish fans. But whether you love him or don't love him quite so much, it's undeniable that he is the best road sprinter that we've seen in the Tour de France, particularly in his real heyday from sort of, 2009 and 10 Mm. where he just seemed to win at will and uh, we've been denied the fairy tale story it might not have ended with the fairy tale ending but at least we would have known how it would turn out you know would he get to Paris would he have that chance to win the 35th stage we're not going to see that now and I think that is disappointing for just observers of the sport but just to put into context because there will be people who don't remember as far back as 2007 when Mark Cavendish made his debut at the Tour de France for T-Mobile when it started in London he was a very young man only 22 years of age I think I'm right in saying and uh, I mean he was already a world champion Uh, let's not forget that so he's clearly a class rider he'd won the Skelder Prize in the spring which was his first big pro win and uh, with the tour start in London and T-Mobile in this kind of weird post-Operation Puerto post-Januric transition phase you know they were looking for a different focus something to kind of almost draw the attention away from all of that doping controversy and Mark Cavendish was kind of a fresh face uh, and a British face at a time when British cycling was kind of starting to crest that wave all of the dominance at the Beijing Olympics ironically Cavendish I think was the only athlete who came away from Beijing without a medal for British cycling but he had the significant consolation of having won four stages of the 2008 tour and I was there for all of them I remember really well being in the finish straight in Chateau Roux with the legendary sports director from Credit Agricole Roger Leger who was a real anglophone he loved the British and Australian and American riders you know Robert Miller Phil Anderson, Greg LeMond rode on his team. And there was a friend 
French rider for Agritubel, who I think was Nicolas Vorgondi. I should have perhaps checked that before we started recording, but I think it was Vorgondi. And he'd been away, and he was going to get caught in the final few hundred metres. And it really was within touching distance of the line. And as Vorgondi was about to get caught, Leger gripped my arm. He didn't know me from Adam, but we were watching the TV screen in the finish straight. And he just said, Cavendish, Cavendish, Cavendish. And true enough, Cavendish came through the middle and won his first Tour de France stage and really didn't look back from that moment. You know, he won six in 2009, five in 2010, another five in 2011, three in 2012. He won on the Champs-Élysées four consecutive years. Incredible, Incredible record. Yeah. Got his green jerseys, two green jerseys, and the real big miss was that he had to wait until 2016 to get the yellow jersey which he got when he won the opening stage uh, that set off from Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy. Uh, there were a couple of low points in the era of Cavendish dominance. The start in Harrogate in uh, the north of England went badly because he crashed on the uh, the well the very close to the finish and that was his tour over and in 2017 he was ruled out after that crash. Do you remember the coming together with Peter Sagan in mm. Vittel? And then in 2018, outside the time limit at La Rosière, on the same day that his British Academy contemporary, Geraint Thomas, won the stage and took the yellow jersey, you know, Cavendish was miles out of the time limit. And it looked like he was kind of done at that point. And then 2019, he wasn't selected by Dimension Data. That left a pretty sour taste. And then 2020, he wasn't selected by Bahrain. Rod Ellingworth was in charge there. Another sour taste. He'd been diagnosed with Epstein-Barr syndrome, which obviously, you know, the long... Uh, effects of that can can go really deep and we didn't really think there'd be a comeback but there was 2021 and of course he won the four stages there Fougere, Chateau Roux mm. again where it all begun and then he tied the record with Merckx in Carcassonne and uh, yeah back at the tour this year with Astana having not been selected by Quickstep last year they went with Jakobsen, Fabio Jakobsen instead probably not the wrong decision I wouldn't have thought at the time but here we are this may be the end of Mark Cavendish's Tour de France career, but what a career, really. A lot of those things there, I'm listening to it again, and you know, obviously I've been on the ride myself, but I'm sure everyone's listening to it as well and just forgetting some of these things. It's just just hearing that back-to-back five stages, four stages, you know, and not getting selected a few times at the end of his career and, and never giving up, you know, just going, no, nah, I am not done and I am here to prove a point. He's such a competitor. And a guy we're really going to going to miss from the tour. Indeed. Well, it was the big story of the day, but it wasn't the only thing that happened today. A real busy stage eight, and we will get to that after a word from a very good friend. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. What's the Tour de Lunsar like then? And how does Stephen Moon of Science in Sport hope to help build the race up over the coming years? It's a competitive race. It's popular. You know, you see the photographs. They get sent all the photos, a lot of video. There's a, there's a massive enthusiasm for it. Um, but I guess it's going to be some years, you know. We're just going to have to make it a more consistent event. And then if two Nigerian teams can come and, you know, make... Maybe we can build it up, but we'll just keep pushing on. Uh, yeah, we'll just keep pushing on. I mean, cycling's a tough old sport already, as you know, and cycling with no kit and no organised governing body behind you. And yeah, I mean, that, that that deserves some commitment from a few of us, you know. Go to scienceinsport.com for everything you need for before, during and after your ride. 
now for some French flavor with B, François Tomazon. So today's stage started in Libourne, which is oddly last name after an Englishman. Uh, it was a warrior, a 12th century warrior close to King Harry III called Roger, Roger de Liburn. And that man actually was named administrator of Gascony, was under English rule at the time. And he gave his name to Libourne. Well, Libourne obviously didn't bring luck to another Breton today because, as you know, Mark Cavendish gave up. But still, you know, the kind of little bit of English flavor at the start of this stage. Uh, Libourne was also obviously the place two years ago where Matej Mororic, the third Slovenian, won the Tour de France stage. And the next day, as you remember, uh, time trial was held in the vineyards of Saint-Emilion, towards Saint-Emilion, won by Wood Van Arts um, the same day. Tadej Pogacar finished eighth and, uh, well, won his uh, uh, second Tour de France. I'm not going to tell you a lot about the finish today in Limoges. It's famous for porcelain, chinaware, uh, and also because it has the, apparently the most beautiful railway station in uh, France. But I will tell you more about tomorrow's start in the town, which is saint léonard de Dobla, because the same as in Dax, when we were in Dax, we had that uh, local hero that was André Darigade and a big statue of André Darigade. Uh, saint léonard de Dobla was the, um, the hometown of Raymond Poulidor. And there's also a big statue of Raymond Poulidor in uh, saint léonard de Dobla uh, at the start. So, well, so, well, Raymond Poulidor, as everybody knows, French legend, eight times on the Tour de France podium, won seven stages but never for one day held the yellow jersey. Uh, his grandson, Mathieu Van der Poel, did hold the yellow jersey himself three years ago on the Tour de France. And, well, I was kind of hoping for him to win the stage in Limoges, uh, but he didn't. He was working for, you know, key haste sprinter, um, Jasper Phillips, and he didn't, well, finally didn't uh, win his fourth stage win. Uh, but anyway, I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, nostalgia uh, for Mathieu van der Poel tomorrow in the you know in front of the statue of his grandfather who died um, three years ago. Well, Mitch, the fairy tale win would have been Matthew van der Poel, his grandfather Roman Poulidor no longer with us of course but he was born very close to Limoges the stage starts in the town that he made his home uh, tomorrow and of course Le Puy de Dom where the race finishes tomorrow is well the scene of that iconic legendary photograph of Poulidor going shoulder to shoulder with Jacques Anquetil in the 1964 tour more of that uh, a bit later on in the episode but if you want to listen to our kilometre zero on Le Puy de Prudhomme a uh, little play on words there. That is now on the Friends of the Podcast feed. There may have been a hiccup for one or two listeners, but it is there now. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about Le Puy de Dom tomorrow because it's mm. going to be an incredible day, if nothing else, because the race goes back there for the first time in 35 years. It's time for the tale of the attack. The stage was, well, it was won by Mads Pedersen, the former world champion from Lidl Trek. And, well, the run-up to the... The finale had its drama, but the opening, well, the opening, what, 150 kilometres of the day from Libourne to Limoges was pretty standard transitional stage stuff, wasn't it? There was a bit of a flurry at the start, but uh, the break finally established itself. Tim de Klerk of Sudal Quickstep 
Anthony de Laplace of Arkea Samsic and Anthony Turgis of Total Energies and they went away and got a reasonable lead but it was never going to be a lead that would stand to the finish at about well there was the Cavendish crash of course and then with 37 kilometers to go Casper Askreen who'd in fact been trying to get up the road right at the start of the stage for Sudal Quickstep he went on the counter-attack and was closing in which gave de Klerk license to stop working a little bit in the front three but Askreen didn't make it across and he was caught with about 21 kilometers to go and then Turgis went clear on his own on that penultimate climb the Côte de Maman with about 17 kilometres to go. And then when it all came back together, well, we're going to discuss how it played out because, Mitch, you've got some thoughts. Uh, but Mads Pedersen of Lidl Trek, what a fantastic finish. He won in Saint-Étienne last year. He's a former world champion. He's a man who's been spoken of in the same sentence as Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert. And today he beat the pair of them. Yeah, it was a, it was a really really great sprint from him but I think a lot of credit and he did credit it a lot of credit goes down to his team they took control let's just talk about the final now they took control at 6k to go and they really bossed it they really had control of that peloton um, quite an amazing job I was really impressed with them and it set him up for that victory um, his sprint was long and hard and that just showed as he said in in the you know in the the post game review you know the press conference, he he said this suits me and I've really picked this out here and that's the way I can beat you know these other guys, Jasper Philipsen. He said they just don't suit me those other sprints. I needed to be hard. I needed to be uphill and I had confidence that I could get over them here. Um, you know Philipsen did come close, but he ran out of legs in the end and I think that was just that slight bit and maybe it was also that confidence that real belief that he had that. This is my way to beat these guys. You could see it in his face, those last few metres. It came to real grit and confidence. He wanted this today. Um, I, I really do believe that with sprinters. It, it is a lot psychological. He fits into that ca category of sprinters who love those hard finishes. It was uphill, wasn't it? I mean, I think back to the World Championships in Harrogate with that really hard finale and then the weather made it mm. trebly hard. That was probably the longest, hardest sprint of his career, but he likes to go from a long way, and the harder the better, really, for him. It, it, uh, exactly right, and I think it's really interesting to point out, you know, Walt Van Aert was tipped as a big favourite today, and Christopher Laporte, he did a great job too, because Jumbo Visma and, and the climb at about that finish at 9k to go was a really interesting point for me. I was wondering what was going to go on there. Jumbo Visma went on the front foot. Kelderman absolutely lit it up. And, you know, Christopher Laporte was supposedly waiting for Walt Van Aert for the final. And he actually had a really good ride today because he had to then cover, you know, Kelderman only got halfway up the climb. Laporte took on that next bit, then slotted back in and then did the lead out, a pretty strong lead out for Van Aert. My actual criticism would be that Van Aert waited too long today and well, boxed himself other, in. The other point you made on that final climb was that Vingegaard was in there, in mm. the yellow jersey, on the wheel of Kelderman, meaning that when Laporte had to come to the front, he had a guy to go round. And the objective is, well, yes, keep Vingegaard out of trouble for uh, the finale, but if you're going all in for Wout Van Aert, surely Vingegaard should have been behind Van Aert. Well, I was I, I rewatched that after after we we said that, and I think what happened there was, I think Kelderman, maybe the plan was to get Kelderman to the top of the climb, and actually I think I saw Vingegaard look back and even yell something out to Laporte to say you need to go around, 
Um, but I was also thinking the same thing. He doesn't need to be sitting second wheel there. These boys were, you know, setting it up, slotting back a little bit behind Van Aert or even in front. Um, but Van Aert, I feel like he waited a little bit too long there. He boxed himself in and never really got clean room to do it the full sprint. But that's what's part of sprinting, as, as we well know. You know, it's all, the, all part of the game. And that's what I want to say back to Little Trek is that they set it up perfectly. You know, Mads, it's the sprint suited him. They put him in the right position, and he went from there. Um, you know, Philipson, an amazing ride from him too, because... Well, I was going to ask you, Mitch, because the fairy tale win would have been Van der Poel in the home city of his grandfather, Raymond Poulidor, but you explained that that was never really on, because... Well, it doesn't really make sense. At the end of the day, Philipson is here to win stages, but also to contain that, that green jersey. I know he's a long way ahead at the moment, but we never know what's going to happen. So for him not to feature in today's sprint and just say lead Vanderpool out or give Vanderpool a chance and him miss out on all the points, you never know. He needs to accumulate as many points as he can because, you know, maybe he's going to have some bad days. Maybe Van Art's going to go on an absolute rampage over the mountains and collect all these points. So you've got to collect them while you can. And unfortunately, that's the way it goes. They can't suddenly just go, let's just share the victories around. Mm. And at the end of the day, he missed out by what? half a wheel today i mean we'll talk a little bit about jaco alula uh, towards the end of this part but i just want to point out that today pogatra was 10th in that sprint today so uh clearly legs are pretty good positioning pretty good no real concerns i mean we'll talk about this a little bit later but we're actually at the hotel campanile limoges nord which we are sharing with team uae emirates i mean it's not a bad hotel but it's a little bit uh, unspectacular isn't it it's you know Today, Pogaccio has got to ride a pretty big mountain tomorrow. And, I mean, the room's fine, but uh, it's not the lap of luxury, is it? Well, I guess it's, it's what the tour is. It's what the world tour is, you know. And this is, everyone sort of, uh, you know, puts this glamour on this life as a, as a pro cyclist. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm not saying it's, you know, too bad. We're in a hotel, but we're not staying in the Ritz-Carlton every night. It's just a normal bed, um, you know, normal, you got your chef here, but you're eating in a normal restaurant. I think that's what I like about cycling is that, you know, I'm talking in, in the whole scheme of things, it's just the tradition of it. It, it keeps it pretty grounded, you're missing pretty normal. It. You're missing it, aren't you, Mitch? Well, no, we just spoke before. <laughs> you said, oh, isn't it good being it? Oh, I'm, I'm a fan. He's got his little sign book out in his back pocket. <laughs> no chance. He's like, oh, maybe I'll run into Pog tonight and I can get him to sign my hat. I said, I'm not enjoying being back around the team because it just feels all too tense around here for me. It, it's, it is. There is an atmosphere here, isn't there? The, the staff are on, like, you know, they're really on best behaviour. They want to mm. make sure that everything goes perfectly. You mean the, staff from the hotel? The, the exactly, staff at yeah. the hotel, yeah. And, you know, the tables are all set out for dinner. The UAE um, sort of uh, musettes have been put on the tables that the, the riders and staff will be eating at. The car park is all roped off with the bus backed in there pretty well. And the mechanics are working behind us. And there is a feeling of kind of, Tension, but, yeah, we're uh, sort of like, am I being too loud? Am I allowed to step here? Yeah. Is, this, is it okay if we have breakfast at eight in the morning? Whereas normally, I wouldn't, don't remember ever booking breakfast in. No, not at a campanile. Anyway, <laughs> on the, um, the, the other big story as far as the race goes, uh, well, maybe first of all, just talk about a couple of the sprinters who weren't there in the mix at the end, uh, Binium Gamay and Caleb Ewan. I mean, that surprised me a little bit because he is good at uphill sprinting. He's a decent climber, but not there today. Yeah, I think he was out of position a little bit there. And I was also surprised with um, Alexander Kristoff. He actually got distance on the climb, you know, the, the penultimate climb there, the final, second last climb, well, the last climb really, 
um, with the pace. I sort of thought he would have got over that today. Not easily. You know, even considering his lead-out man, Rasmus Tiller, was got over there and he was top 10 as well in the sprint today. So either Christoph didn't have a great day or... Or they switched it and said, Rasmus Tiller, you go for it. Yeah. Uh, Bruin Kokar was in there as well. He was sixth. Niels Ikoff of DSM was fifth. Uh, Ewan was 28th. And Biniam Gamay was 44th at 19 seconds. And Caleb Ewan, 49th at 28 seconds. So, yeah, a couple of riders who I would have thought would be up there uh, not figuring in the sprint. Dylan Gronewigan for Jaco Alula was fourth. Uh, coming a bit better today. I wouldn't necessarily have thought that was a finish for him. So maybe that's an encouraging sign for later in the tour. But... I guess a bittersweet day for Jaco Alula because Simon Yates was involved in a crash with just over five kilometres to go, so outside the safe zone. And Mikel Lander also went down, although Lander is kind of already slipped out of the GC battle. But Simon Yates was lying fourth this morning, lost 47 seconds. Um, well, we'll hear from the Jaco Alula sports director, Matt White, here about what just what happened. Whitey, tell me about today. With Yatesy, um, he got off with about 47 seconds. Yep. Um, what's the state of his injuries? Oh, I'm not going to talk about medical stuff at the moment, mate. We've been in the finish line 15 minutes, and uh, we go through the protocols with our doctor. We'll talk about, we'll check him out, and uh, we're not talking about any medical straight away. Mate. Does this change the plan or anything like that now, or just keep chugging along as you are? You know, considering the situation. No, it doesn't change. No, it doesn't change the plan at all, mate. It's. Uh, it's the Tour de France. You lose 15 seconds, it's 30 seconds. It's, it's a three-week race, so it doesn't change any, anything that we're doing at all. Do you know how the crash was caused at all? Yeah. No, I haven't, mate. I, mean, I just got out of the car, so I haven't had a good chance to look at the vision, but uh, a couple of guys have gone down. I think Lander was involved in the crash as well. Uh, yeah, Simon thinks that someone, maybe someone hit a spectator, but he doesn't know because you know, he was trying to... Try to keep it up. We haven't. I don't know if there's vision of the crash or not, but I certainly haven't had a chance to uh, to check it out. Did you immediately ask a few guys to wait for Simon at that point? What was the decision at that moment? Yeah, yeah Chris Harper was with him there already, and you know we were stuck behind the crowd and changing bikes, and so we we finally got to him. Uh, I think it was only 3.7 kilometres from the finish where the crash was, so we missed that out by about 700 metres. Um, but by the time we had, uh, by the time we got to him. He was in the convoy, but we were already we had already uh, approaching the final rise to the climb, so that was there was nothing else to do. We got bike change, back on the bike, did what he could, and uh, we limited our losses. So Yates slips from fourth to sixth overall before the Puy de Dom stage tomorrow, and that means that Carlos Rodriguez of Ineos moves up to fourth, and Simon's brother Adam Yates of UAE, of course, he moves up to fifth. And, well, just a little word on Carlos Rodriguez, because he's had quite a tricky season so far. He had uh, he had a crash, he fractured his collarbone earlier in the year, he was knocked off his bike in training, and even just a few days ago in Courtrai, I think it was, he was um, a, a cameraman in the team bus area at the finish stepped backwards and caused him to fall off his bike but going well and Rod Ellingworth said to me this morning that you know he's a steady as she goes type of climber not maybe as explosive as others but 
doing well and now he's in a great position. Apparently Rodriguez himself thought that on the day that Pogacar and Vingegaard went on the Tourmalet, he felt like he might have been able to go with them, but thought it was too far from the finish and didn't want to kind of blow himself up with so long to go and the final climb up to Couture. And Rod Ellingworth said, well, at some point in the Tour de France, you've got to hit your head against the mm. ceiling and find out where that ceiling is for you because there's no point just riding around for three weeks totally within your, your comfort zone. I'm sure he will find that out later on in the race, but it's a little insight and quite an interesting one that Rodriguez has ridden into the top five you know, very quietly and clearly very well placed before the next big climbing stage tomorrow. Well, Mitch, we were anticipating Simon Yates being one of the riders really in contention for that third place on the podium, assuming that Pogacar and Vingar are, are going to dominate. I mean, we don't want to delve into speculation mm. too much but today was a mini disaster I know Matt White said at the finish in another interview you know the tour can always be better but it can always be worse 47 seconds a costly Tour de France tax from a, an innocuous crash there uh, but Simon Yates is still in play for a podium place right? Yeah look I think the time is sort of the minor point out of this I know it's still 47 seconds but the injury I hope for him it's nothing serious. But almost every time you go down, something happens. Because I, I don't doubt that, you know, the tour is long and a lot's going to happen. So 47 seconds isn't the end of the world. It's not great, don't get me wrong. But if he's carrying an injury now, that could be the worst thing ever. Um, when you talk about an injury, I mean, I, I've fallen off my bike, broken my collarbone. I mean, I couldn't do anything. For weeks i know that i didn't have mine pinned and that the the riders all get them pinned that's mm. why they're back on the turbo early but in a stage race where you hit the deck and you've got road rash and maybe you've you've knocked the, your side if you've got bruising is that something that you you just carry with you basically from the next morning onwards and you're just always thinking about it and it's always draining the energy yeah, well, it's, uh, I guess there's a psychological element to it, but it's a lot physical, you know? The, just even if you hit the deck and you don't have much grazing, simply falling onto the road will give you a lot of bruising, you know, and you get bruising in your muscles or you pull a different muscle. You know, I saw him hobbling around after the crash just on the TV. Uh, I don't want to speculate, but, you know, maybe he's pulled something in his calf, you know, or, you know, it just it twists you around. Falling on the ground from the bike, you get a someone else's bike into your leg all this sort of stuff and it, the next couple of days are the worst and tomorrow's stage is a massive one he wants to be feeling fresh the best of himself yeah not a version of himself sure well i caught up with our good friend il barone the baron brian nygaard because he knows the eight brothers really well he was a press officer at the orica green edge team for a number of years and well i caught up with him on the phone to find out what he makes of both Simon and Adam, because although we know that Adam is going to work for today Pogacar, uh, he's still very well placed on GC. Well, in fact, today he's moved up. Let's check in with Il Barone, Brian Newgard. Hello again, Brian. I'm imagining you in your, you know, your, your, your your Italian uh, abode there, enjoying the Tour de France, working very hard, of course, but uh, the luxury of being able to sleep in your own bed and not have to travel around, lugging your suitcase down to the car. What a wonderful way. Technology has enabled you to <laughs> cover the Tour de France. 
I miss I miss being there, and it's certainly a different atmosphere. I, I'm, however, as as you mentioned, I'm I'm definitely also thankful for. Yeah, I'm actually right now sitting on my on my terrace, looking out on the rooftops towards the the Mediterranean Sea. I I feel very privileged. Thank you. Stop it! Stop it! I'm currently looking at a half-packed suitcase. Uh, it's <laughs> it's well past checkout time. I need to crack on. I wanted to ask you today, Brian, about the. Yates twins, Adam and Simon, of course, for a long time, teammates in the team you worked for, Orica Green Edge, and both very well placed in the general classification going into the stage to Le Puy de Dom. I mean, conventional wisdom tells us that Adam Yates, now that he's out of the yellow jersey, will fall into a support role for his teammate, Tele Pogacar. I don't think there's any chance uh, that that won't be the case. But seeing both of the Yates brothers up there in the GC I must bring back some memories of the time you worked with them yeah lots of them too especially on the, on the first day when they when they rode away which was absolutely sensational and I don't know how how I'm sure you're aware of some of it but it's it I was quite surprised when I realized how competitive the Australians are against the British I remember when when <laughs> um, when uh, Shane Bannon, my my former boss on that team, called me when he had just signed them, brought the brothers, and before even mentioning their names, he just said, "We got one on the palms this time, you know." And, and the palms is uh, the I'm not sure it's the most flattering nickname that that they use for for you lot, but it was just there was just a pride in in getting something that that you know, especially in this case, Team Sky really wanted, and and it was sort of also it ended up defining an era for that team having both of them there. And I, when I was seeing uh, some clips from that day when they were riding in together, and it was it was quite intense because who who normally Simon would be the faster finisher of those two, and I, I saw a clip of Matt White, my my friend and 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 former colleague there, said he was definitely backing Simon, and and so was I because you know in in most other situations he would be the faster of the two. It's just very very rare that you see them competing and simon yates of course when when we were comparing the the palmares of the two brothers uh, earlier on in the week you know simon yates has actually racked up a pretty impressive looking cv hasn't he and of course you know has a vuelta a España to his name so he must be eyeing that third place on the podium and well it could be the ashes on bikes jai hindley against simon yates for third place <laughs> in paris maybe yeah that's sad and then again the 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 British and the and the Aussies can then again cheer for for their own country, on top of it. But I, but I do think it it took a little bit of a time, and it definitely took the Walter win for Simon to wipe away the disappointment and that story that sort of clung to him about how he lost uh, a Giro that that had for a long time looked like he owned it completely. When on, yeah, up until Chris Froome made that devastating attack. This is a very difficult era to be a, a great rider in because there are so many and so many young riders who are extraordinary. And, and Simon and Adam aren't young riders anymore. They might look it, but they certainly aren't. And I sometimes feel like riding in the air for them or for any other at that level, not that there's that many, it must be a little bit how, how Felice Gimondi felt like he, when he was riding against uh, Eddie Merckx. Because you, you, if it hadn't been for him... He, he, he probably would have won as much as Fausto Coppi. And I think if it hadn't been for Pogaccia, uh, Vingegaard, potentially even Bernal, I think one of the Yates brothers could have had a, a, a decent shot at, at, at winning the Tour. Yeah, they've been a bit unfortunate, haven't they? I mean, the, their careers have overlapped with first Chris Froome, then Egan Bernal emerged and kind of 
Um, well, he won a tour, of course, and and then you know Pogacar and Vingegaard have just kind of raised that level, haven't they? <clears throat> yeah, and then that level, that level we're seeing that level now also is there's there's just such a big gap between how good those two guys are, Vingegaard and Pogacar, and and then the rest. It and it and they somehow it's a little bit easy to fall out of the of the most interesting part of what we're looking at in the race. But it's yeah. There's, there's still a lot of, of Tour de France to go, and uh, I, I still think Simon is stands with a with a decent chance of finishing on the podium. And lastly, Brian, what are the two brothers like as people? Because I think we in the media and the public see a quite a sort of media savvy version of their personalities. I mean, I think they're very good in the press conferences when they they have to speak. They engage with the questions really well, uh, but I wouldn't say they are completely open books. And I certainly wouldn't say that they court the media attention or crave a, a high profile. They're quite happy just riding, letting their legs do the talking, really. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And it was a bit of a headache for me initially because, well, it, it was actually a headache for a lot of people on, on the team because you just could not get a hold of them. I mean, and for for for, for, for kids, I suppose, they were, or, or young young men in that generation, it's quite rare that you aren't looking at your phone, you know, eight, nine hours a day, So, which is, I guess, a blessing. But it was just a constant struggle for anyone to get a hold of them. And, and you, as you can probably imagine, not at least for me, because they were not interested in doing media at all. And it was just, they were just so focused on being the best they could possibly on the bike. And they didn't have any interest in, in becoming popular or being a household name or, or doing, you know, deep dive interviews about, you know, the, the corners of their personalities. And I've actually come to like that a little bit. I, I sort of like that attitude. That's like that all business. And, you know, if you, if you give one of them an elbow, you you're certainly going to get one back, you know, and I think that's, they're definitely great company and pleasant and funny, you know, but they they are just, yeah, they're, they're stern little men, aren't they, most <laughs> most of the time. And I remember, I think it was, I believe it was Adam he, in the white jersey in the last tour I did with that team, and he had a lot of uh, post-race duties because of that jersey. And it, he's, he was so done with it after like three or four days. And there was a time trial, and and I, I I grabbed him as soon as he crossed the line and, and took him to the mix zone, and it was like not the biggest sort of area behind the podium, and and here it was Bernardino, uh, the Amory family, the, you know, the son, basically the head of the board for ASO, and Christian Prudhomme, and they were standing in his way, and he he was wearing his sunglasses and his TT helmet, so he didn't really know. <laughs> who was standing in front of him basically the most important people in the world of cycling you know as you were and he just said like I, I'm gonna have to like moderate a little bit because he was using swear words that I don't think belong on, on the cycling podcast but he definitely told them to get out of his way and that's just <laughs> and it's just very it's so typical you know it's that's just how they are it's uh, they're not disrespectful they're just they're just as focused as anyone I've ever met in the sport yeah, I remember right back at the start of their career, actually. Well, and, and again, as a journalist, you know, the obvious angle is let's interview Adam and Simon together and find out yeah, you know, what they think about idea. each other. And, and well, actually, yeah, I mean, you. I remember you said there's just no way they're going to do it together. You can interview one 
and then you can interview the other and you can put it together in one thing. But somehow you managed to uh, pull this off and you set up a meeting for me with both Adam and Simon oh, yeah, that's right. on their I home turf in, in, in Lancashire in their favourite tea shop that they've ridden to many, many times on their training rides up in the north of England. And I got up very early in the morning to drive up and I suffered a puncture on my car and had to call out the recovery service and get the tyre oh, changed and I was running late. I had to send a message. Uh, like you say, I I could tell they hadn't read the message that I was running late. Um, <laughs> I was panicking that they wouldn't be there. I arrived maybe 40 minutes late thinking oh, this is a really bad start to this. But they were so pleasant. They were actually, you know, they were concerned that I was, all, you know, are you okay? And, and, uh, and I think it, that gave me a little bit of extra time to think about my strategy and realize that they are not um, two halves of the same person they are individual people and so I spoke to them as individual people about themselves and they really responded quite well to that and well that's the last time I sat down with them for an interview so maybe they didn't feel the same way but uh, who knows it's, act it's actually something that I thought about a lot because uh, as you know Lionel I'm a father of identical twins myself and I think I've learned a lot from working with Simon and Ed and how you you know the f if you're a twin you you also think you you potentially crave more to be your own person because you're always mentioned as the twins or the brothers or people think it's sort of quite endearing that you're, especially for identical twins, that you're 100% alike. Uh, now I think it's helpful for them in a lot of ways that they're on separate teams, you know, they and they have separate agendas, especially in this tour, you know, as you mentioned earlier with Adam uh, being a very important helper for Pogacar and, and with Simon, you know, basically riding his own race for the podium. And I've, I've definitely seen a blossoming on Adam's behalf, even if he hasn't accomplished the same Grand Tour merits that Simon has. When you look at his last couple of years, even riding in the shadow of, of more prominent, you know, prominent riders, he's racked up significant results. Uh, whereas, you know, Simon, I think this this tour is quite important for him because he hasn't had an easy year. Whereas uh, Adam has been basically producing results since the start. Well, thanks very much for that, Brian. Hope you have a great day. And we will check in again with you, perhaps towards the end of the second week. Enjoy not having to pack everything into a suitcase. Enjoy doing the opposite, Lionel. Always a pleasure. Some breaking news, Mitch. Uh, Philippe Martins, the press chief of the... Astana team has sent through an update to confirm that Mark Cavendish has broken his right collarbone. Oh. But on top of that... Uh, the screw that has been in there since that 2017 crash in Vittel uh, that was, well, I don't want to say caused by Peter Sagan, but Peter Sagan was disqualified from the race as a result of that. But that screw has come loose. So I'm going to imagine, I'm no medic, but I'm going to imagine that's going to need some kind of operation to, to sort that out. Um, so, yeah, really disappointing news there. For oh, very disappointing. And... Uh you know, whether the, whether he goes on for another year or not, we're only speculating this now. Um, but he would probably want to finish on his own terms. He'd want to do another race. So, Yeah, that's a big that's point, a, That's actually. a big, big That point. can't be Mark Cavendish's final moment. It can't moment be, and it won't be, cycling. I think. No, no. Well, we will, we will wait and see. But, uh, well, here we are at the Campanile Limoges Nord. Have UAE Team Emirates come down for dinner yet? We do know, breaking news, we do know they're having breakfast at 7, ahead of a long day to Le Puy de Dom tomorrow. Uh, quite an early start for them. I do hope you're not next door to Tadej Pogacar with all your snoring. I mean, a big snorer, are you? No, I don't Oh, yeah, that. right. <laughs> Here he is. 
old bloody, you know, <laughs> sleepy, sleepy. <laughs> oh, I knew that would come up. Hey, I, I, dro- I drove the car up today. In our two hours, <laughs> old sleepy here. He just has a, nods off, catches some flies in the seat. You're going to be struggling to sleep tonight. Like I think you've you've slept too much. Oh, it was only twenty minutes. It was the perfect was length. You don't even know. I pulled into the service station no, probably for an didn't. hour and a half. You were still there. I cracked the window, so there's still a bit of air in there. <laughs> Came back. Oh, you, le- you left me in there like the family dog. <laughs> yeah. So that I wouldn't overheat in the car while you went in the services. I'm it was not having cute. that. It was I'm cute to see you catch up on some sleep. <laughs> anyway, a big day tomorrow. A big day tomorrow. And I'll explain why in a moment. L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. First of all, though, Mitch, last night's dinner in Bordeaux. We did well, didn't we? We did very well. We, I was worried. I was worried that without Francois's incredible knowledge of uh, French restaurants, that we would struggle to find somewhere. But you came up trumps. Oh, yeah. I came in late, too, because only last night, as you would have heard on the podcast, we announced the new job to me, and I, quick sticks, found OQG Bordeaux, which is was just up the road from our hotel, which is, you know, could be, could be sceptical. We were actually in a bit of a dicey area. Well, we were down by the railway station, weren't we? And as Francois often said, don't stay near the railway station. But they're rejuvenating that area of Bordeaux, You can actually. see it's coming. It is, yeah. There's a kind of a, a sort of exhibition centre-type building opposite our hotel. Our hotel itself was, well, it was cool, actually, wasn't it? Well, there was a dartboard there. There was a dartboard, and this morning we kicked off with a couple of legs of 501. I mean, extraordinary that Mitch took a leg off me. Um, I did bounce back from defeat. Uh, I was hit. The, I was hammering the treble 20 after that, but uh, won all in the cycling podcast darts tournament so far. But the dinner last night, it was great. It was. We walked in there, and it felt like we are in... I don't know, Argentina, even had an element of Catalonia. They had the open sort of grill, something that I was very used to you know, living back in Spain before. The open grill, some aged steak there as well. We had an amazing meal, 1.2 kilo sort of filet de boeuf. Um, Co- it was Co- a Cote de Boeuf. Cote de Boeuf. I mean, you ha- you have to factor in that there's a large bone on that. That That is included did in the Did you need more meat, did you? No, we didn't finish the meat, did we? Unfo- well, I say unfortunately. I was I was done. It was, an, it was an all category of steak. It was really nice. It was very well cooked. And, uh, yeah, we had a, a nice bottle of Saint-Emilion to go with it. Mainly because all the Bordeaux wines were really expensive. And I just thought, mm, let's... Uh, Rain it in. Let's rain it in. Yeah, but it was a it was a nice meal. It was a good night, and it was a real morale boost because I I was worried because one of the things that I know we're going to miss is Francois's kind of knowledge of France. Mm. You know, f- for a start, he will know restaurants he's been to before. He'll know what to go for, what to avoid. He always books the restaurant early in the afternoon and makes sure that we get there on time. Um, but no, you did well. And um, tonight, I'm confident as well. We've got a kilometres walk to our restaurant, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm expecting great things. But what about tomorrow's stage, Mitch? We've got a great stage tomorrow. Um, this is one of the ones everyone's been looking forward to for many years. We're heading up to the Puy de Dom. This climb hasn't been tackled since 1988. It's 182k. It's a really tough stage, actually. It's up and down all day. We're heading out from St. Leonard de Noblet, Nobla, um, and there's a sprint after 30 kilometres, but 
it's a tough start. I wouldn't even really call that a sprint because it's at the top of a small climb. Any other stage, they'd be called a Category 4. But on this stage, because there's so much more, it's not a climb. We've got two Category 4s after that. There's a Category 3. And then we head down to the Puy de Dom for the final assault. The Puy de Dom, it is 13 kilometres and averages 7.7%. So it is a really tough climb. It's an uphill finish tomorrow. This is going to be one of the first real tests. I know we've had some other gr- big days just a couple of days ago, but I think everyone's been looking towards this stage. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I'm, I've got a kind of an obsession with Le Puy de Dom because I remember the last time the race, the Tour de France, went there, 1988. Uh, the full story is in the kilometre zero about why the Tour has taken 35 years to go back. But effectively, they put in a funicular railway at some point. There were concerns about how much sort of damage was being done to the, the environment because it is a, 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 a national park and it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site as well. It's a dormant volcano and it's spectacular. It stands above uh, Clément Ferrand and as Francois Tomazo said in our Kilometre Zero, you know, it's almost an urban climb in a way because it's so close to the city. Whereas Mont Ventoux looms over the Provençal countryside, Le Puy de Dom looms over Clément Ferrand, which is a decent sized city, the home of Michelin, Mm. of course, the, the tire company. And in 1988, Johnny Welts, a Danish rider, won there. He was a sports director at EF for a while, or, or Garmin, as they were then, or maybe even Slipstream. Uh, it depends how far we're going back. And th- there was such chaos getting off the volcano afterwards because there's just one road up uh, that the tour hasn't gone back. They put in the funicular railway, which narrowed the road as well. It's actually closed to even leisure cyclists almost all of the time. There are occasions when people can ride up. But it's those final four kilometres that are the real uh, key thing because uh, once they get to that point, the road just sort of goes up like a big corkscrew and it's always just turning right. You can't see the top. Uh, There's no hairpins. There's no respite from the gradient. It's just a slog. And uh, there's been relatively few opportunities to recce it. So I do know that there was a a recon um, window that ASO organised. I know Ineos went to have a look. Jumbo Visma went to have a look. UAE Team Emirates, I think, went to have a look. But Jayco Alula, for example, didn't, thinking that, well, you know, the gradient is the key. Uh, we don't need to take a day out to go and mm. look at the climb. Um, but it's going to be a spectacular day. And Mitch, we're going to try and get up there. I've got, yeah. Why don't we grab a six pack? <laughs> chuck it in an esky and just be part of the vibe. You know, like often we're running from the start to the finish and we, we sort of absorb it a bit. But we be nice to immerse ourselves in this, especially on this climb. The thing is, there's going to be no spectators up there. So we'll be up there on our own. Yeah, there's going to be no crowds up there. So we will, well, we can go up. We've just got to be organised and we may have to do a 4K walk up the final part of the climb. But I'm happy to do that. Grab a sixer and go. Yeah. Well, we will do that tomorrow and we'll probably tell the story of Le Puy de Dom in a bit more detail. But in the meantime, listen to the kilometre zero. Mitch, we should wrap it up because, uh, well, we've got to walk a kilometre to our restaurant. I'm expecting great things. I'll be disappointed if it's not amazing. Uh, But until tomorrow, thank you very much, Mitch. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.